I, and I honestly do feel that way. I think it is the greatest radio station in the world. And Howdy, and welcome to this episode of the Conversations at Music My Mother Would Not Like podcast. This is a series of conversations with artists, singer-songwriters about their current projects, and industry people about some of the current trends. The program is hosted and produced by myself, Bruce Swan. The podcast will endeavor to be a bridge from the weekly live concert series to the weekly radio show. And while unaffiliated, they are connected by a sharing of the same name, Music My Mother Would Not Like. You can find more information about the weekly series and the radio programs at the website, musicmymotherwouldnotlike.com. And the radio show can be heard live on WSFM LP 103.3 FM, Asheville, North Carolina. It can also be heard live on AshevilleFM.org, and programs are archived on the website, too. The program airs now on Thursdays from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. The weekly series with the same name can be heard and seen on Zoom and Facebook. You can get more information on the website and on my Facebook page with the same name. Registration for the series is always free. It is a donation-based event, and that's how the artists are paid. These podcasts will vary in length. Many of the episodes will come from interviews conducted live in the radio station or via telephone and now via Zoom. Nothing was ever taken out of context and may be updated if it's possible and or appropriate. The opinions expressed will be those of the speakers and not necessarily of any of the radio stations that I've been lucky enough to be affiliated with over the years. It's owners, staff, or boards of directors. And you can support this project directly through the website's PayPal account. In time, there will be a Patreon account. They will have a heads up on articles, etc., But if you're digging what you're listening to, please tell a friend. If you'd like to support the show and would like to shout out on thanks, let me know in the PayPal comments section of PayPal. Please remember to indicate that you are sending a donation as a gift to a friend. In the comments section, let me know where you're listening from. I won't use anybody's last name unless you say it's okay to do so. Any little bit helps. And if I've learned anything from my years in community radio is that lots of big things will get done when many hands chip in a little bit. Think about the cost of a cup of coffee at your favorite local spot, and maybe you're listening while you're sipping. I'm glad to be keeping company with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Big thanks to the sponsors of the programming at Conversations at Music My Mother Would Not Like. We currently enjoy the benefits of being sponsored with and connected with hearitthere.com and undiscoveredmusic.net.
Over the years, I've had the opportunity to get to know many musicians and industry people. The musicians are often the band's principal singer, or in the case of a singer-songwriter, the only person the conversation is really about. I've also been privileged to get to know and work with many other radio personalities, directors of festivals, owners of venues, and radio and record producers as well. Many of the conversations were to promote a single event, like a concert or even a discussion about a new album with a deep dive into that project. I have found that sometimes, as a listener, knowing a little bit more about the artist as a person makes going to the concert just that much more interesting, and it really does for me. I find that sometimes, as a listener, knowing a little bit about the artist as a person makes going to the concert that much more interesting, and it does for me. That takes a little bit of probing. Conversations are as much about listening as it is about talking. Would your business, your firm, your company, your project benefit from meeting other cool people like yourself? Well, maybe you'd like to be a sponsor of the program. Working with people that think alike or share common interests is the key to getting things done. You can write to me directly through the website musicmymotherwouldnotlike.com. The episodes of Conversations at Music My Mother Would Not Like will once again take a bit of a departure from some of the previous episodes. In the August 23rd, 2021 edition of the New Yorker magazine, staff writer David Owen wrote an article about the radio station in Bridgeport that I was affiliated with and broadcasted for 10 years. The station, WPKN 89.5 FM, is an independent radio station with a loose affiliation to the Pacifica Network. The article was entitled The Greatest Radio Station in the World, and the article is a good read and worth finding. This podcast is a discussion with the filmmaker Robert Cobb Carlson, who made a film about the radio station. The film, entitled The Greatest Radio Station in the World, is an objective snapshot of the present-day radio station. It was done with sensitivity to the history of the station as well. Saying more at this juncture about the project may be a bit too foreshadowing of the content. I enjoyed my conversation with Cobb, and I hope you do as well. This is sort of a first for me to interview someone about something that I've got personal experience with it's always it's uh it's not the way i've done my interviews in the past typically the interviews i've i've had are with musicians uh singer songwriters front people to a band folks from industry talking about some of the marketing trends but this is the first time that i have ever spoken to somebody about something that i was intimately involved with and as a matter of disclosure i had a broadcast i had a program music my mother would not like on wpkn in the latter parts of my career there, the, the show was heard on the second, fourth, and fifth Friday from one to four and brought, began broadcasting somewhere around 2012 and finished my last broadcast June 2021, music my mother would not like. It's a real pleasure to welcome you, Cobb, to the program, to this podcast, Rob Cobb Carlson. Thanks so much for allowing me to get some insight on a, on a really great film called The Greatest Radio Station in the World. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me. Bruce, it's a pleasure to be here and to uh, be in your company again, spend some time. You're a gent, an absolute gent. I appreciate that. Your personal credits include filmmaking, of course, editing as an editor, assistant editor, camera operator for film and television, freelance filmmaker for over 20 years, 25 years, I beg your pardon, and currently digital production and editing instructor professor at Eastern Connecticut State University. Some of your other credits include editor in Farmageddon, the Donald Ross Discovering the Legend About Golf Course Designer Legend Donald Ross, film editor on Blazing the Trail, the O'Callums in Ireland, and contributing article to No Depression magazine. You were reared 
under the FCC or the radio umbrella in Bridgeport of WPKN. You were reared in Fairfield, Connecticut. Were you a listener of PKN as a kid? Was it part of, was it, a, was it a preset on the radio station? Was it something that you found later in life? How did you get to PKN? And bear in mind that from the edge of Fairfield border to WPKN is probably maybe three miles as the, as the crow flies. Maybe. maybe Close. Five. Well, uh, no, growing up as a kid, I'm an old guy. I, it was uh, Cousin Brucey from WABC in New York. And uh, I think there was WMCA, some songs too, possibly. And then there was no good music locally, but my parents would have the radio tuned to WNAB and WICC for the local news growing up. And then when I was in college, you know, friends from the New York area, like, oh, you got you to gotta tune in to WNEW, you know, to hear really good music. And I didn't come to discover P. I knew kind of PKN was there, the University of Bridgeport. I had played college basketball at Stonehill College, and we were in the same conference with UB. And on summers, I'd go to campus and play pickup basketball games in the Harvey Hubble Gymnasium there. And my grandmother lived until she passed in her uh, mid-90s in the south end of Bridgeport, down okay. right off of Park Avenue on Lewis Street. So even though I grew up in, I was born in Bridgeport and Bridgeport Hospital, grew up in Fairfield. My dad was a mailman in Bridgeport all his life and a clerk at the post office. And uh, so I have strong Bridgeport roots. So after college, I taught uh, inner city in Hartford, Connecticut. And then I did some work in the natural foods industry and then somehow stumbled upon this job as a, a program director at the Greenwich YMCA and public relations and marketing director in the, in the 80s before I got into film. And that's where I really kind of got to know PKN during the 80s when mm -hmm. I was living in Fairfield County. And then I... Uh, made the career change in the mid 80s to get into film. Yeah, I, I started to do a little documentary on my grandmother who lived in the south end of Bridgeport. And that little half hour documentary called An Irish American Story did play on PBS. And the, the funny connection with PKN is I, was, I had done some volunteer work manning the phones during fundraisers and got to know Harry a little bit, Harry Minot, okay. the general manager, who's kind of featured in, in my current film. And it turns out Harry had worked in advertising in New York City and had an old 16 millimeter Eclair film camera he was trying to sell. And he sold me that camera and I used it when I went over to Ireland to film like where my grandmother grew up, the farm she grew up on and relatives of hers that were still alive and the countryside in Ireland. So that was a strong connection to WPKN was I bought a film camera from Harry Minot back in, in like the late eighties. So, and I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but what was the impetus to make, to make this film, to make this, sort of snapshot in time, but still with great respect to the history of the radio station. And I think also 
a good lens on what the future may be in store for the radio station. Every community radio station certainly has some incredible challenges ahead of it. But what was the what was the impetus to say this is worthy of my time and I'm hopeful that others will find it worthy of their interest and buy a ticket and come see it? Well, I had there was a little bit of uh, arm twisting. I had the thought as I was working in the uh, world of documentary uh, and living in Boston, I would come back to Connecticut quite frequently to visit my family. And I'd always tune into PKN. When I'd get in range outside New Haven, it would be on the car radio. So I was, I continued to support the station by t-shirts during fundraisers. It always seemed the time out that, I don't know, I came down to Connecticut so frequently that often I was able to contribute. And I thought, you know, I think it would, this, the station would make a good subject for a documentary. But I was busy, so I never undertook anything. And back about five, six years ago, I had to come back to Fairfield and I was living, I was spending 50% of my time there taking care of my elderly dad after my mom had passed. And I called up the station, I don't know, to do, to, to do some volunteering. I had some free time while taking care of my dad. And I met Steve DeCostanza, current general manager. And he's like, oh, you're in film. We need someone to do a documentary on the station. I'm like, I said, no, not me. I said, I just did this long documentary on this golf course architect. And I took two years off and I lost money. And it was a good film. And I'm glad I did it. But I'm not ready to jump into another one. I said, why don't you find some student filmmaker and I'd be happy to supervise them or consult. So nothing ever came of it. So then when I got the gig teaching at Eastern Connecticut, I sent out a blast email to my network and Steve's like, all right, now's the time to do this film. You, you can use your, this film the equipment from the you know, university and get some students to help you. And I'm like, no, okay. I think the time's right. I think somebody should, should document this special place. So I did why I bought a film, I bought a new camera because I wasn't happy with the cameras that they had at the school. And I came down in February, 2021 and did my first shoot and filmed Carl J. Frano doing his show and shot some interiors of the station, Steve working at his desk, et cetera. And then the second shoot was I came down with some students for Music Mash. And that's when I interviewed you, Bruce, in the studios was that weekend in March of 2020. And so we were off and rolling and then COVID hit. And that really changed things. And I had to put the film on ice for a while and mm -hmm. figure out a way as we learn more about the, uh, the virus how to continue making this movie in a safe way. And so what ended up happening was instead of having all this student help, I ended up, you know, being a one person operation and doing everything myself, lighting it, shooting it, recording the sound, asking the questions. So, and, uh, and doing so it was a, it was quite a challenge 
because I would have to double mask and and I would wear my have to wear my reading glasses and they'd always be fogging up as I'm trying to look in a viewfinder and focus. So I had a few miscues with some soft focus shots over the course of the of the film, but for for the most part, it looks pretty good. So that's kind of how it came to life. I I, I saw the film last night um, or two nights ago. We're, we're speaking now on a on a Wednesday, and I think I saw it on a Monday night, and fittingly Memorial Day weekend, um, which really I don't know you know, how these things line up or maybe they just sort of work out and you find your coincidences. But there were many moments for me where I had to grab a, a Kleenex just to kind of, you know, remember and, and dab my eyes so, so that my eyeglasses wouldn't fog up as I watched yeah. it. It's, it. It's a it's a fantastic expose on the, ho on, on the whole radio station, you know, this quirky little radio station that started as a student-run organization or a student university-run project in 1963, went independent in 89, and has been thriving in spite of fiscal challenges, management challenges, um, staffing challenges. Steve talks about it being an upside-down organization uh, by design, where the, the, the junior-most member or staff member has the same voice as the senior most, and the, the board and management work on behalf of, of the staff almost sort of an Asian principle, but worked out well. I, I loved it. I thought it was really a fair and accurate uh, expose. I love that you brought in Jim Motivalli and talked about the history of the radio station. I think that his his presentation of the history of the radio station was very objective, very concise. And I learned a few things and found that I, I was dispelled a little bit of the myth from, from the actual history. Now, did you find as you were interviewing my colleagues and, and uh, management that there were some myths for you that were dispelled, that were some, some mysteries that you had heard about or thought about or finally dug through and said, I guess that's really not what happened? Well, I thought there was a lot more conflict and controversy. And as I interviewed people, I had to be very careful. There were uh, folks I interviewed who seemed to have an ax to grind. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had to be, you know, some of that stuff just didn't, didn't make it into the film because it was, it was sort of very personal and grudge-like. Grudge and I, you know, it was like, it just doesn't fit. Now, that little chapter I have in the film on conflict, I thought was very important to put in there. I didn't want to make it seem like it was all wine and roses at the radio station. But I think Harry Minot's closing statement to that section was very pertinent, which influenced me kind of working backwards uh, while editing that section on conflicts at the station, which was, you know, he says the station needs to be looked at as an organic thing and things that were contentious in the past are no longer so. And I really like that. I think that's kind of very apropos in life too, as you, some things you look back, you thought it was really important that fight that was waged and it ends up being, it wasn't that big a deal. 
quite frankly. But so that was, I thought there was a lot more controversy. And, you know, granted, some people were being careful, maybe not, it held their cards close to their chest. But, you know, as I've seen some other films on radio stations, independent radio stations, and often the films resolve, revolve around a crisis, like, oh, if we don't raise funds, we're going to close our doors. And, and, you know, there was a little bit of that at PKN clearly over the years. And I, that's in the film, but it wasn't as major as I thought it would be, you know, that somehow even during some of the tough times, they were able to stay above water and keep on plugging along. Other than that, that was, that was, the, that was the big one for me. Yeah, for those listening to the podcast outside of the the um, the FC, you know, the, the radio broadcast umbrella of of WPKN, it's important to know. I think that that it was a that it is a strictly volunteer organization with some paid management. That's essential. That somebody has to be shepherding the flock, heading, steering the ship, guiding forward movement. But it is by and large a very very democratic situation run by people that are incredibly passionate about what they do, that think that, as Steve said, 200 programmers and each one thinks that they have the best show because it's true. Each one does have the best show. And that is that is always going to be a, um, a potential <laughs> hotbed for, for contention, for differences of opinion. But I think that it was either edited carefully or presented carefully and I think that I think that giving honor to to the contentiousness uh, at times during the radio station was very important because it's very much a part of their hours the history uh, of the radio station I, I want to shift gears a little bit about the perhaps the difficulties of independent filmmaking were you able to get grants for the project were you able to did you have to pre-fund it and are you still funding it? are you still paying for it for the rest of your life i mean what and, and can people still contribute outside of, of simply buying a ticket uh when when it's being presented and we'll talk a little bit about some of the upcoming dates in, in a wee bit important thing for me was uh as much full speed ahead as i could i Again, with COVID, there was a lot of trickiness doing the film because the radio station, uh, once the pandemic hit, had to shut down. And no one was allowed in the radio station except for people, the few people who decided to come in and do their shows. So I kind of had, you know, had my hands tied. And then we figured out a way, okay, to do the interviews at the Bijou Theater Mm. uh, downtown. But, that explains uh, the lights in the background. Okay, good. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. So Gary Peterson, the manager there, he gets a credit at the end as guardian angel. And he was because he just opened up the theater to me whenever I, you know, whenever it was mutually convenient for us and convenient for the interviewees to show up and go on stage and be interviewed. Okay. Uh, but back to the, the production. Yeah. So I'm, it was kind of just get the thing done and then figure out, all right how to get it out there to the world and things like this podcast are important to spread the word. Ideally, my goal would be Bruce is to get it on one of the major streaming platforms. Okay. Uh, I have entered it in a few film festivals. It will play in this Bridgeport film festival in July. The others are pending. I'm waiting to hear the Hamptons film festival on Long Island, the Santa Fe film festival. I got turned down with 
to a big one in LA. So film festivals don't mean as much to me as they once did earlier in my filmmaking career. A lot of the glamour is worn off. And I just as soon get it out there to the general public. And the best way these days are streaming as opposed to any theatrical play. I, I hope there'll be some theatrical play in independent theaters in Connecticut, like Real Artways in Hartford and the Avon in Stamford. And uh, there's a theater over in Port Jefferson across the pond, uh, Long Island Sound. And so I'm hoping for a little bit of play at independent theaters, but primarily the financial aspect, I just did it on my own nickel. I did get one grant, which was nice from Connecticut Humanities, which helped me a lot because one, two things I couldn't do with the production was the sound mixing and the color correction, which is a real engineering kind of things. Hmm. So two friends in Boston, real pros who have been working in the world of film for many, many years, did me solid. And uh, I got a great mix and the film looks great. This friend Dave Allen did the color correction. So the grant from Connecticut Humanities helped me pay those guys, which was great. But other than that, I just said, you know, I can do this on the down low, which is more my style, kind of guerrilla rebel filmmaking. I, I did buy my camera, but I was able, and my microphone, but I was able to use lights from the university and, and stands and uh, lavalier mics, which are very expensive. So yeah, it was a little bit of guerrilla filmmaking. Here at There.com is an online arts publication that supports the arts and culture of the New York City tri-state area with concentrations in the Hudson Valley and Western Connecticut. Intelligent, well-written blog columns about music and the arts can also be found on the site HearItThere.com. Check it out and consider marketing your upcoming events on HearItThere.com. I do. You know, I was one of my questions was, did you have difficulty getting buy-in? It sounds like you had some difficulty making full buy-in. And I know, I know how Steve works. You know, he, he will plant an idea and let it fester and curate that idea yeah. until you think it's your idea and you're yeah. asking for permission to do this, but he never lets it go, you know? And, and I think that his foresight was, was really tremendous, but did you have trouble getting buy-in from any of, any of the colleagues did, I mean, there was certainly yeah. not everybody could be on the film and there's certainly some people that just either didn't want to be in, but was there anybody that gave you a difficult way to go about the project yeah. or, Groups of people. Yeah, there. I was surprisingly so, but I respect. There were a couple of people I thought would be really important to be in the film. Programmers. A couple just said, "Nope, not in zero interest. I refuse to be in this movie." Okay, and I think, and others just never got back to me, even though I reached out by emails, and Steve would reach out like, "Okay, here's Cobb's doing his film." And he wants to interview, you know, you and da, 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 and just heard nothing, no response. So that's pretty clear to me, like, all right, no interest in being in the film. And some people are like, hey, how come so-and-so isn't in the film? Well, if you're wondering about that, it's because they chose not to be, not because, as a matter of fact, you know, I, I, anyone who was interviewed 
does get some face time in the film, some very small, not much time, but everyone who's, who was willing to come in is in the film. But there were some programmers that were vehement that they did not want to be in it. And I think maybe it's something you know from your experience in radio is radio, a lot of people in radio like the fact that it's sort of anonymous, that right. you don't see them. And they're sort of a mystery person. It's just the voice and they can, you know, do their thing in relative anonymity. Right. There is that allure, I think. And I respect that. So not everyone wants to have a lens stuck in their face or go on camera. So that's perfectly fine. I still think that when all was said and done, I got a pretty good representation of what the station is about and what that diversity of people is, I think, what drives the film, the folks that decided to be part of it. Yeah, I felt as, as a viewer that it was a very accurate snapshot in time, you know, the course of the two years that you spent filming, editing, making, and, and probably the five years that, that Steve um, <laughs> spent <laughs> curating the idea, <laughs> bringing it to the forefront of your plans. But I think that radio is an incredibly personal and powerful medium that sadly is probably deteriorating in popularity for, for lots of reasons. But I know some of my colleagues, short of bolting the door, turn the lights down, they just have the studio light on, they don't want anybody in the studio with them. Mm -hmm. And others broadcast with the door open, the lights wide up, and and welcoming anybody who wants to come in and hang and sit and, and be part of the community radio. Others take on their own radio persona. That once they're once the the light the flip of the switch goes on the microphone is hot they become that radio persona and when the show is over then they go back to themselves and it's not a split personality but this is this is how they distribute their art form i think and and, and each of us were very very different in our approach to to how we handled or managed our two three four hours whatever the time frame was some of us had the third or the they, they get the fifth Saturday of the month. I know one of my colleagues had a, a program sometimes four times a year, sometimes as few as three, never more than five. Just the way the calendar worked out as the fifth Saturday. I enjoyed the process personally, but I, I did find it a little intimidating to be on the other side of the microphone. It was the first time I'd really sort of been interviewed and <laughs> it was non-participatory. You know, there was not, you and I were not side by side. We were opposite one another, but you were behind the camera. You were, you were safely embedded behind the camera right. and I was in front of it. I, I found it a little bit frightening, frankly, to, um, but, but interesting. It was, I was glad I did it. And, and I thank you for um, the clips you, you selected. The, we talked earlier about your interest in radio, you know, sort of coming up as a kid, like many of us would listen to, listen to Cousin Brucey and graduated to NEW, and maybe you listen to Imus in the Morning on, on NBC, some of the other programming. But there have been other programs, and, and I think you did touch on this a little bit earlier, other films and documentaries like the early years of WBCN or particular jocks like Bob Foss from WBAI. Right. It was, I thought that was a beautiful documentary, yes. maybe because I'm a radio guy. but um, Yeah. It was very good. Well, so, the, and there was one done called Sex and Broadcasting, which is, they took the title from that book of the same name, which is like a history of community radio. And Benny Klein had recommended I read that book. But that was on, is it uh, FMU down in Jersey City? 
I yeah. think. And there, that film was really about that. That was one where it was like, uh oh, if we don't raise money, we're going to close. And the central character was the general manager who kind of, you know, just runs the whole station. But uh, not a bad little film, but uh, mine's very, our, mine turned out to be very different. I didn't know what it would be going in. I really didn't have a roadmap. It's, it's sort of, I went and shot everything and then I said, okay, what's the story here? How do I put this puzzle together? And what came to the forefront was the fact that it's about the personalities of the programmers. And that's what makes this place jump and kind of what makes it sing. And, but I felt for, in terms of a film and my experience in documentary, that it needed the context of the history of the station. And that's how I kind of put the puzzle together, history and then programming primarily are the two main elements. Well, I think the history is important because I think it gives relevancy, as, as I think you're saying, to what the programmers are doing and to what the station is about and how it, it did evolve from. It, it was fun to watch the old pictures of, of the, the students or the broadcasters in jacket and tie, yeah. and short hair yeah. and horn rim glasses. And then yeah. it evolves to Kevin Gallagher without a shirt on because there was no air conditioning. You know, right. you, you, you baked in the summer and froze in the winter in that little studio. And you know, from, from some of the tales that he wove over the years, some people look better in the winter than they did in the yeah, summer. I'll say. <laughs> well, no, that all that stuff was important. And I had to, that was one of the hardest parts about making a film is finding images to cover the history section, because again, it was a, I, it was a double whammy at the university of Bridgeport. They had basically had, shut down and the university closed shop, closed their doors in the course of me making the film. So that, and then COVID hit. So the resource of the library, which had all the old student newspapers and yearbooks, lucky for me, there was, they had a skeletal staff at the library, just keeping it open and going, but no one could access nobody from the general public was allowed in the library for the last two years uh, luckily there was one one guy an archivist there who still did, hadn't lost his job who was able to provide me with the digital scans from the old newspapers yearbooks the stuff that stuff had been scanned by the university but the quality was very poor and once i picked out what i really wanted that guy went back and rescanned the images for me so they would be good enough to, you know, be able to be read on screen in, a, in this in this film. But uh, yeah, that 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 stuff was just I really lucked out that he was a real savior for uh, providing me with with those old photos and old headlines. Yeah, for the for the listener, uh, and not those that have had the benefit of, of, of viewing the film, there's lots of old pictures that go back into the 60s and 70s of 
students behind the microphone interaction where the radio station was brought outside and interacted with students very much a college radio station but also the impact that it had on the community on the non-student population of the radio station or within the listening area of the radio station and i think that it would have been quite a different film without the without the historical pieces that that sort of validated the memory and kind of gave us a a different focal point while we were listening to him. So I think that that was, that was magnificent and fortuitous, but also sort of emblematic of all the challenges around WPKN, you know, open, closed weather, funding, staff, management, new general manager, old general manager, buying the license and, and all the, the mystery and the hooky-doo that went around that, which is probably a whole different, different kettle of fish and different story in and of itself. But that, that was was quite a quite a story that Harry used to, to tell periodically about how how the station obtained their their freedom from from the university and and I think for the most part it was a pretty harmonious relationship and my interaction with the university was most of the students didn't know that the station existed which I thought was rather surprising we um, we used to have to fetch our, our post daily from the uh, student center across the street the mail the mail center and I was, I was fetching the mail and I love doing it. So I went out and got some fresh air, fetched the mail. And the guy said, well, this looks like some CDs. And I said, yeah. He said, well, there's a lot of them. I said, well, yeah, it's for the radio station. He said, what radio station? <laughs> I said, the radio station across the hall. And he said, come on, really? I said, no, I'm telling you. There's a radio station on the other side of this sidewalk in the student union up on the second floor. He goes, come on, you're pulling my leg, right? I said, it's okay. So yeah, it, it the independence from the university was for the most part harmonious, I think, until until the end and leases were nulled and void and, and the station found a new home, which I think was also a big part of their history. UndiscoveredMusic.net has something for everybody involved in seeing, playing, and hosting live music. It is a very well-organized website designed to help you find musicians to play at your venue, what venue the artists are playing at, and when. So if you are in the music industry, you're a buyer, player, or watcher, in person or virtual, check out UndiscoveredMusic.net. You know, I, I wanted to ask you where the nickname Cobb came. I know the backstory, but it seems like there's a history of, of um, interesting nicknames within your family. Your father, Robert Beef Carlson, and yourself, Robert Cobb Carlson. You've adopted Cobb, I think, as your working first name. What's the What's the story on that? Well, it it goes back to Fairfield. Uh, I remember it was I was in sixth grade. We had this ritual where I would go over on Sunday mornings to my friend. Uh, Dave Linney's uh, driveway, he had a little eight foot high basket uh, for basketball. And three of the uh, star players from the Andrew Ward High School team who lived in the neighborhood would come down to this little eight foot high basket and like, you know, have a, a dunk contest. And it was, and so during one of those Sunday mornings, they decided to play a name game where they'd switch the first letter of your first name with the first letter of your last name. So, you know, you would be Sarus Buan, right? 
So mine was Rob Carlson turned into Cobb Rarlson. And I don't I have no idea why, but of the five of us who would be playing on those Sunday mornings, uh, mine was the only one that stuck. Probably a little easier to say, Cobb, than Sruce. Yeah. But I don't know. <laughs> so that's where that originated. And, and I, I remember seeing one of those guys like, you know, 20 years later, and he was just shocked that people were still calling me that, that that name like lived down through the years. So yeah, kind of funny. Well, it's stuck and it suits you, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, were there any conversations? We talked a little bit about some of them were difficult. Were there any programmers that you would have liked to have been able to speak to that were perhaps no longer available in the listening area that were able to come into the station? Does your your memory or your interest in the radio station go back far enough that there was there might have been people that were out of our area that you would like to have met and, and sat with? I was I would have liked to had uh, interviewed Mike Zito, but Mike, there was always some schedule thing. Luckily, I was able to get Mike in there telling this funny story about what because I found this headline in my research. I was like, oh, my God, WPKN DJ gets beat up at the station. And I'm like, this is too good, you know. And sure enough, Mike did come back to Bridgeport to do a show and I wasn't in the area. So luckily Steve DeCostanza took his iPhone and went in the studio and had Mike during the course of the fundraiser tell the story. And it makes it into my film where literally he got mugged and they, these people came in and they, as he tells the story, they had all these carts, which, you know, Bruce were for PSAs. Mm -hmm. And they look like it, the old eight tracks. Right. And these bandits thought that they would steal a bunch of eight tracks. And it was 1974. And you <laughs> when know, they were they worth whacked, some money. <laughs> yeah, they whacked him over the head, bloodied him. He had to go to the hospital. And, you know, there's a great punchline to the story, you know, which is Mike, he had been substituting, doing a fill-in for a guy. And that this was rare at the time. The guy's name was Nick Drenchen. He was a nurse, a male nurse back in the early 70s, which was extremely rare. Right. And Mike was filling in for him because that guy had to take an extra shift at the hospital. Well, after Mike got beat up, he got taken in an ambulance to the hospital, had to spend the night. And the guy came in the next morning like, what are you doing here? Because he had taken the guy's shift, right? It's like, <laughs> what a great story. So I, I didn't, the, <laughs> anyway. I was going to say, I bet the last question was, was there any dead air? Yeah, right. There was. <laughs> there was dead air. He tells about it in the story. Yeah. It's a funny little thing where he sent, this, this guy was the social director at the student center, he had made, been able to go downstairs to, to like at call for help and because uh, they didn't have cell phones in those days. Right. And this guy went up into the studio without giving too much away from the film because I pretty much have told the story anyway. But that guy went up into the studio and album that Mike had had on was at its end and it was just stuck. 
click, 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 click. Right, 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 right. And the guy didn't want to touch it. He thought the FCC police <laughs> would come and get him and arrest him because he never licensed the broadcast. So it was a fun little story. So Mike was one. There was a, a guy I remember was, I mean, I, I like all kinds of music. I like jazz. And it was a fascinating show to listen to this guy, Victor Petrera who was a friend of Harry's and the guy was really eccentric and unique. And Harry, you know, his story didn't end up in the film, but he was, you know, Harry had stumbled upon this guy and the guy was an encyclopedia on old jazz from the early twenties and thirties. He would, he didn't drive a car. So he'd have to take a bus to come to the station to do the show or Harry would have to pick him up. And that would have been a cool guy to have in the film. I, I was able somehow to unearth a still photograph of the guy uh, from his niece. Uh, and Harry, I just did a bunch of detective work. And, you know, she was able to unearth one still of him at the station. Hmm. And that was actually a problem with uh, research for the film is the PKN itself Steve gave me as much as they had, but there was not a treasure trove of photographs or any film of people doing shows over the years. It's really focused on come in, do your show, leave. So there wasn't a lot of historical document documentation, especially in the 80s and 90s. And I'll have another little fun story to tell you about that. That was that was tricky. There wasn't a lot of archival material that the station itself has, you know, cabinet files of. So what I did in the beginning and towards the end of the film, there's just two short segments where there were a few people who I wanted to make sure got paid a nod to. And so I have a little musical interlude. In the beginning, it's a woman who was on Bill Nolan's show playing blues guitar. And I just show a montage of still photographs of people who I wasn't able to interview, but I thought I'd like to give them a place in the film. And I do that at the end of the film too. And most of those people are past DJs. There were a couple current DJs. But most of those are folks who either have passed away or just are no longer working at the station. But I thought it was important for them to have a little quick nod in the film. Yeah, it was very touching. Um, yeah. This picture of Mickey. And, you right. know, as, a, as somebody I, that was in the public periodically at festivals and, and concerts and so on, many listeners would say, oh, I recognize your voice, which was very flattering. Or yeah. they saw my WPKN lanyard, which was probably the most obvious. But they would say, do you know, what's this guy like? And I'd say, I don't know. I've never met him. I said, but you're on the same, but you, but he's on WPKN, right? And I said, oh yeah, he's there, but I've never met him. I said, well, how, how can that be? And I think we forget that each of, that, well, PKN is, a, is, a, is an organization. It's not a company. It's not Monday to Friday, nine to five. And I think that that is a reference that we bring into it when we're thinking about this, when we're thinking about the other broadcasters, you know, certainly you must know them, certainly you must pass them in the hall. No, their show is on Wednesdays at 10 o'clock. My show is on Friday at one o'clock. I don't stay around all day waiting to, you know, we don't do that. It, we come, we go, we do our show, 
we relax a little bit and then we leave because the next person needs the studio. It's their assigned time. We get up and get out. And so I think that that is kind of an interesting mystery about radio that, that was very foreign to me when I got there and people would say, are, are you a programmer? I said, no, I'm nobody. I'm just the guy answering the telephone. I love the radio. I'm just, I'm just helping out like your, your time, your tenure. Hey, free programming is not cheap to produce. If you'd like to support this type of independent podcast, you can make a donation at the musicmymotherwouldnotlike.com. You will have my gratitude. Thank you so much. But were there any surprises for you that that maybe you discovered as you were making film or interviewing some of the other programmers or staffers at WPKN? Was there things that that became apparent that, that you hadn't really either A, thought about or B, knew about? Well... I'll answer that question. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to it. But one, may, probably my biggest surprise, and I'm not sure it answers that question exactly, was, again, how I came upon elements, uh, still photographs, archival material to use in the film. And I saw this little goofy film posted on Facebook on the station. I'm like, what the hell is this? This little five-minute kind of quirky, almost experimental film and so i contacted harry he's like oh yeah that's you know brian konevsky i'm like brian i you know brian and i you know haven't been in touch with him for a long time but we were good pals and brian konevsky had graduated from the university of bridgeport an artist got his degree in art and what does he do he opens a bicycle shop on fairfield avenue in the black rock section of bridgeport and when I was, I'm a big bicyclist. And when I was in Fairfield County in the eighties, I would go in to Brian's shop and, you know, have him do repairs and get equipment. And he's a real fun guy, long ponytail and like yours. And he um, ends up, he started to dabble in film and video. He eventually closed up his bike shop, which was heartbreaking for people in Bridgeport and Fairfield. And he and his wife moved to Albuquerque. And he ended up getting, a, like went back, got another degree, ended up becoming a professor at the University of New Mexico. And he's one of the kingpins in the world in this other completely kind of unique genre of experimental filmmaking, far out, trippy filmmaking, runs festivals. He, he just retired last year from the university, but he's still very active as a filmmaker and film festival and curator, et cetera. Well, it ends up, Brian, when he got out to New Mexico, says, I'm going to go back and do a documentary on PKN. So he came back in the mid-90s and did like four shoots and then said, I'm not a documentary filmmaker. I'm not doing this. Never went anywhere. Well, I, I reach out to him. He goes, yeah, you know, I did. He goes, I got all this material. He goes, you want it? And he sent it to me, all this, inc all, he shot it on super VHS. So the quality wasn't great, but perfectly usable. And he saved my ass. All that fun black and white footage from the 90s of Harry, of fundraising, of meetings, you know, that's in there because of Brian. So that was like a phenomenal surprise and really made help make this film what it is so that was uh that was 
you know, kind of the biggest surprise. In terms of station, actual station stuff and stuff I might have learned, let me just pick my brain for a second. I'm thinking of some of the, I think just some of the history stuff and some of the insights from people like Kevin Gallagher stuff I would never know. And like, you know, you could take a bowling course for two credits at the university and you're a student and you could do radio. So a lot of people would just come in, sign up for bowling and you'd get a radio show. You know, that was hilarious to me. And learning about that, that first real paid manager and his, uh, that was a big surprise, the whole Jeff Tellis aspect to the station and that even going back to the sixties when he came aboard and his tenure into the seventies, you know, Harry, you know, made it real clear his and other former programmers that his, uh, I mean, his influence at the station is carried through to present day. And that's, that's big. No, his is certainly a legacy to the station. The work that Jeff did and Harry did is what is, made the station possible and carry through because it would have, it would have imploded and just closed up. And that would have been, it It would have been a footnote somewhere sometime and yeah. forgotten ever wish to go back and revisit some of your completed projects, flush them out a little bit differently, them a little differently. You know, I should have talked to this guy. I, I can now talk to him. I can edit it in as a compendium or a part two, you know, yeah. WPKN part two. Well, even sitting here, you know, responding to your questions, I, the wheels are always spinning. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I wish I had put something in the film. Because uh, uh, someone, uh, Pete Stewart, told the story of going in to follow Amir Rashid, his show. And he, he, he remembers the first time he went in and the room was dark and there was the incense burning and a couple of candles, no lights. And, you know, there was, I, it was a great story. I just had no place to put it in. And Pete is in the film quite a few times. So that sort of thing, I was like, oh, shucks, you know, probably would have been, you know, fun to put in, slip something in what you said about every programmer has their own way of like doing their show and the, their physical arrangement, the lighting arrangement. You know, like you said, close the door, open the door. So, yeah, I like God, I probably should have gone down that road. That would have been a fun little thing to have in. I always enjoyed the the fundraising, sitting in the in the bullpen, yeah. talking to each other. And some of the stories that some of these guys have, it didn't take much to whittle them out of them, but you had to sort of open the door. And Pete, Pete Stewart has a wheelbarrow full of stories on any given day of things that, that about being in the right place at the right time, or just being in a place and understanding that this is, this is the moment and, and just being present in it. And you know, what comes to, to mind is uh, when Graham Parsons passed away, he mm -hmm. happened to be Parsons was a student at Harvard. He was encouraged to talk to this professor and between the two of them, they sort of figured out country rock Parsons died. This particular professor goes to uh, take a tenure at UVM. Pete was a student at UVM. The professor said, I'm going away for the weekend. Would you watch my house? He hears the news about Parsons. The phone begins to ring. It's Stephen Stills. It's David Crosby. It's all these rockers calling to express their, their sadness, their condolences. That's not a story that you wear on your sleeve, but it, it took just a little bit 
to to get Pete to talk about that and the stories like that. You know, Howard Howard could weave tales long and hard about the the music industry and about some of the personalities that that he interacted with over time. But it, it's it was a marvelous place, very welcoming, um, very competitive, and very challenging, and trying to not do better, but at least be as good as the person that preceded you. And there was many of the jocks that really tried to help us take on that that feeling like you don't have to be better but try to be as good try to try to carry your audience from your previous listener over to the next into your show and then try to bring something of your show into the next jock so that meant that you had to know who preceded you and what they played and who succeeded you and what they were likely to play and try to transition not everybody did it and it was a bit of an effort to do so but i enjoyed listening to the the um some of my colleagues that i have not gotten to know well over the years Catherine conroy comes to mind yeah. her her passion um based on growing up listening to her father's radio in in the background you know robert halstead yeah. and and so these are things. So I guess my, my, my question to you now would be, are you a radio listener? As Do you keep it on as company? Is it something you dial into periodically or you just turn it on in the car? Or Because I, I know what it's like to be over the certain radio uh, umbrella, the, the, that FCC umbrella, getting into the listener zone of your home station. You're driving and you can turn it on and it starts to, it starts to crackle in and then it becomes crisper and crisper. And then you're in that, that, that frequency and you can listen to it until you can't and you get in the opposite direction. But um, are you, are you currently a radio listener? Yeah. I, well, by all means, I'm a big radio listener. Being in the Boston area, I, tend to listen to four different stations we've got we do have some pretty good talk radio i mean my go-to every day is terry gross uh, fresh air pr and that's probably my you know favorite radio show of all time we've got a couple college radio stations the one at emerson college and one at mit or good local stations for music I have a couple friends who do talk radio at uh, WGBH's radio, so I occasionally turn in there. And like on Saturdays, Brian O'Donovan has this great Irish show, and because of even though I've got a Swedish last name, my I'm three quarters Irish, and my maternal grandmother, who I did my documentary on an Irish American story there at the south end of Bridgeport. Uh, very Irish. She was an Irish immigrant. And because of that, I got, I have dual citizenship as an Irish citizen too. And so I like, like Brian's show doing Irish music. And of course, um, when I'm in Connecticut, Eastern Connecticut, we have a um, college radio station there, small. Of course, I'm listening to PKN when I'm working online because I you know, it's an interesting thing. I, it was one thing I did not get into in the film, but I had penciled in as one of my possible themes to explore in the course of the film, which is the death of terrestrial radio. Is it really a, a dying thing? You know, in all honesty, many respects, it, it kind of is, but lucky for all of us, there, it, there's this virtual world and streaming. And I think that's still what keeps radio alive and that's what how I'm listening to PKN mostly these days is over the internet. So sure, I'll have my second screen up, you know, shrink the window and it's over in the corner and I can listen, you know, remotely at PKN, even though I'm not down in Bridgeport.
The film, The Greatest Radio Station in the World, takes, I think it takes, written yes. um, last year from the New Yorker magazine by David Owen, staff writer for the New Yorker magazine, his article entitled The Greatest Radio Station in the World. Were there other working titles or had you not come to that point yet? Just one. I thought it was going to be called On the Air. And I kind of liked it because, you know, you there at the station, I, 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 at the station, there was the little light outside the studio that goes on, on air. In my kind of scavenging and finding all that old archival film for free from the Library of Congress and the Internet Archive, all that black and white footage of old radio stations, what continued to appear was that little that those little signs on the air on the air i'm like well this is that's really what this is about it's about people being on the air and and then when that came out and to show you what a small world it is steve de costanzas let me know he said oh this guy's come to the station he's going to do an article for the new yorker on the radio station i'm like well that's cool he goes yeah david owen i'm like well, I know David because he used to be, you know, a writer for Golf Digest magazine. He had a monthly column. So I worked with a friend in Boston on a, a short golf film that he had been uh, commissioned to do. And David was consulting with him. So I met him. Well, I hadn't seen him or talked to him. He's just kind of a passing acquaintance. But I contacted him and said, hey, David, remember me, Cobb? Oh, yeah, hi, Cobb. You know, da, da, da. I said, well, if you want to see the... Tr At that point, I'd only done the, those two long trailers for the film, passed them along to him, and he didn't mention the film in his article. You know, I, I was... I said, God, this is... I, this has got to be the title of the film. It's got a lot of cachet, and it's pretty apropos in the way I feel. I And I honestly do feel that way. I think it is the greatest radio station in the world, and and David, to his credit, I mean, his article basically said the same thing. Well, you just stole my last question, Bob. <laughs> yeah. So let's do this. Let's finish up by by telling people, um, besides some of the some of the clips and snippets and trailers that you have edited out and have found their way to WPKN.org. I think there's a backslash for documentaries. Just check out the front page, WPKN.org, and I'll have that in my trailer notes on SoundCloud. But where can people, when can people, and, you know, will, will you make this available somehow commercially for those that can't make it to, to the various festivals? What's, you know, what's, what's in store for, for this, this masterpiece of uh, what used to be home? My hope is that it will be streaming at some point on one of the major platforms for people who might live in Dubuque, Iowa, or Tuscaloosa, wherever. There may be a small presence at film festivals, but yeah, the goal would be to have someone else stream it and let the general public access it. Worst case scenario, I build my own website and you go there and you pay 10 bucks, five bucks, and you can stream the film. That's That would be the worst case scenario, but that's... Unfortunately, folks are probably going to have to wait till more towards later in the fall because I'm going to spend the next few months trying really hard to get it either uh, on Amazon or Hulu or Netflix or Apple TV, one of the 
you know, larger streaming companies so that more people can, can have a look at the film. Well, while this interview will live on, my goal is to help promote the gala premiere, which is happening June 25th at the Bijou Theater right in downtown Bridgeport. It is a fundraiser for the radio station. Do you know how people can get tickets? Can they get them through the radio station? Should they get them through the Bijou? What's the best way that you're aware of at this point? Well, it's sort of uh, this week is still a work in progress. We're just beginning the, a publicity campaign. But I know people, their last fundraiser at the station, which was last week about singer-songwriters, I don't know if you got to hear any of those two days, it was very, really good. I mean, because we're all passionate about singer-songwriters. They actually sold some tickets, like kind of impromptu. So I think if you if people in... Connecticut really want to go, just call the station or email the station, or I'm pretty sure that they'll have an opportunity to go to the station's website and purchase tickets very shortly. So it's still kind of happening. Okay. So that website is WPKN, Peter King, Nancy, uh, which actually stands for Purple Knights Network, WPKN.org. The gala premiere is June 25th at the Bijou Theater. Seems appropriate, right in downtown Bridgeport. And also, you will be headlining on July 23rd as part of the Bridgeport Film Festival, which will be shown at the Klein Auditorium. That's a whole different kettle of fish, certainly a much bigger auditorium for intimate seating. Obviously, you want to head to the gala premiere at the Bijou. But can you talk a little bit about what the Bridgeport Film Festival is going to be like? And again, it is on July 23rd, I would imagine, one screening only. I think it'll be the the festival, which is a great thing. It's only in its second year, started by a young guy, Jason Combs, a native to Bridgeport. I think he'd spent a lot of time in Manhattan. He was an actor. And it's a real positive thing for Bridgeport. I think last year, the film festival focused on short format films. But this year, it's more wide open. So, and another little connection is my friend Brian there, the experimental filmmaker from Albuquerque. He's going to have a few of his films in there, which were actually about Bridgeport. So that's kind of fun, but it's going to be a mixed bag, the festival. But my film will be the headliner on Saturday night. Same kind of deal, seven o'clock screening, I believe, at the Klein. And that's a good opportunity for people to see the film. You know, if you don't want to put out a lot of money and help the station at the at the premiere very understandable uh come to the the showing on uh july 23rd at the Klein. saturday evening more money and, and support a nice uh up-and-coming film festival you know it's it's been a real pleasure and I was, I was honored to be part of the film i've got a couple of cameo pieces in there and i thank Critical. you for for uh, editing those in that was that was wonderful We've been joined by Robert Cobb Carlson. Best of luck with this project. And I want to thank you so much for, for two things. One, taking some time to sort of flesh this out, this film out and talk about how it came together, but for taking on the project. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. It's, it's really generous. And uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Big hearted. Big hearted. Yeah, but it, it's, it's objective. I think it's a very objective presentation of a very complicated little radio station in, in the insiders know that bruce i know i, I tried to uh 
uncomplicate things. But uh, you know, thanks for having me. Thanks for your support, and thanks for participating in the film. I think when you uh, talk about some of, I, I'm glad that you had a couple of teary-eyed moments because there are a couple. I hope people respond that way. And you know, I can't say enough about your sharing that story about the woman who came to the door at Music Mash. And that was uh, it's just a great story. And I think really helped me kind of, you know, get to the end of the film. It was kind of critical. So you got to go see the movie to find out what the story was. I'm Bruce Swan. This has been A Moment with Cobb Carlson. Thanks again. This was the 11th episode of the podcast series, Conversations at Music My Mother Would Not Like. You can get more information about the weekly radio shows and the weekly stream series at the website musicmymotherwouldnotlike.com. My thanks to Cobb Carlson for his time and wish him the greatest of successes with the film. The film was a very accurate snapshot of the radio station. WPKN was an experiment and one that continues. It began in 1963 with no end in sight. You can get more information about the film and the radio station itself at wpkn.org. And if you're in the listening area, you can tune in on 89.5 FM on your FM dial and listen, or listen in from the website. Big thanks to our sponsors, hearitthere.com and undiscoveredmusic.net. And finally, thank you to you for listening and spreading the word about these podcasts. So until next time, don't take any wooden nickels. So long for now.